Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist, and the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DiBiaz. Tonight's guest is author Tony Balbo. Tony hails from Michigan and has worked as a football scout, assistant coach, and head coach as, at various high schools in Michigan since 1989. Last August, Tony made his literary debut when he published Give Me a Six-Pack, the story of the 1976 Pittsburgh Steelers, a massive and moving account of one of the greatest football teams in NFL history. Tony delves deeply into the great players, coaches, and the members of the Rooney family who own the team. Tony, when did you first conceive the idea of writing this book? Well, I always wanted to write about about this team. I mean, I didn't know if I'd ever be a writer or anything, but you know, I wanted to change a direction in my life. I uh, I just got done down from my uh, from my dream job. I wanted to be the head coach at my high school, and it was the second time that that I was turned down. So I wanted to try something different. And I always thought this story about the about the '76 Steelers was was always very interesting because of the uh, the uh, university they had to face. They had a terrible start to their season. That basically, I wanted to write it before somebody else did because I figured somebody would think it'd be a great story. Okay, so because now, because that's interesting because the Steelers dynasty under Chuck Noll had so many brilliant seasons from 1972 to 1979. Why the 1976 season specifically, Tony? I remember several times I've, I've watched a lot of NFL films features over the years, and a lot of the a lot of the Steelers, including uh, Mr. Rooney himself, said that the best team out of all of them was that '76 team, even though they didn't win the the, the Super Bowl. Uh, I always attribute it to two different reasons. One was their incredible ground game. Rocky Blyer and Franco Harris both ran over over a thousand yards that season, and and also because of the defense. I mean, that's the first thing anybody would think of about the '76 team. <clears throat> excuse me, uh, was the defense because they gave up only 28 points in their last nine games. And they had to win every one of them because they got off to a one and four start. Wow. What was it that made the Steelers defense so awesome? Was it their formations? Was it the personnel? Was it the combination of the two? What was it that made the Steel Curtain defense so so vaunted? Well, there's there several reasons. One, they were incredibly well coached. You you rarely saw the Steelers out of position. And they always tackled well. You rarely saw a Steeler miss a tackle. Those guys, and they could—they always hit with ferocity. And so that's part of the reason I, I attribute it to it. They're fundamentally sound, and they were all great athletes. Uh, Chuck Noll, uh, Bill Nunn, uh, Todd Haley, or not Todd Haley, Dick Haley, the uh, the main scout for the Steelers, and of course the Rooney family themselves were heavily involved in in drafting so well, and they drafted so many good defensive players that you know they were they were really overloaded. I think uh, I want to say at least seven men from seven starters from that team were named to the Pro Bowl, 
And then an eighth was named to the team because of injury. I think the extra addition was JT Thomas. I can't think off the top of my head for sure. So eight of their 11 starters made the Pro Bowl. And this is back in the day when there were only, uh, you know, 13 teams in the conference and they kept a roster of only 40 people. So the talent was just overloaded. What sort of offense did the Steelers uh, emphasize? What was their offensive approach to football? Well, they were always a game-controlled team. Always were. But they had to be even more ground-controlled because uh, uh, Terry Bradshaw got hurt in their in their fifth game, the one that made them go one and four. So they had to rely on a rookie quarterback, uh, Mike Cruzo, to run the show. And he won several of those games. I think six of them in that nine-game stretch he started. But he never threw a touchdown pass. So they had to rely more on the running game. But they were already a run-heavy team. Uh, they were split backs. They ran counters and cross bucks and trapped like you couldn't believe. And the, their line was never very big either, but they were so quick that they could trap with any of their four exterior linemen. The only one that would ever trap was the center. And they knew then what they knew now, the center be trapped too. Wow. Okay, you said they got off to a slow start, like a one and four start. What what led to the turnaround? You know, what was there was there any type? What led to the turnaround? Was it you know they got their guys back or what? You know how they how did they recover? Uh, I think a few different reasons they had to recover. I think because of they had they had to, I guess, shorten the game. That's one way to say it, because they knew Bradshaw wasn't going to be there. They had to control the clock in the running game. Uh, the first game that they had after Bradshaw went down, Franco Harris uh, set the NFL record for the time for carries in a game. He had like 42 of them in a game. And so they ate in eight and eight clock against Cincinnati. So their offense didn't really have the ball very much. And their defense started creating turnovers. There really wasn't anything in terms of getting, uh, getting personnel back. It was probably just a, a, a reason of have to, they have to win these games. And that, I, I remember a quote from reading up on this from Mike Wagner, they're starting free safety after that uh, Cincinnati game that gave them their second win, he said, and he was asked a similar question that you asked, and he said, well, we had to win because Lambert said he'd kill us if we didn't. <laughs> I like to tell our listeners back then, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the NFL, it was run, run, run. The run was emphasis, whereas today it's pass, pass, pass. So, we were living. You, we the Steelers were, were basically performing in an era where you were supposed to establish a strong ground game. Isn't that right, Tony? Absolutely. But I mean, the NFL was pure. Well, I shouldn't say pure run, but they were predominantly run. And the Steelers, even before Bradshaw went down, was more run than anybody else because that's when he had a backfield like uh, with Franco Harris and Rocky Blyer in it. You want to emphasize the run. Bradshaw was still kind of coming into his own. Uh, the great receivers they had, Lynn Swan and John Stallworth, were still young. This is before their really breakout years. So 
that was a Steelers style. Well, throughout the league, it was a run emphasized league, but more so in Pittsburgh than anywhere else. Tony, hypothetical question. Let I'm because I remember this game vividly, the AFC Conference Championship game against Oakland. If the Steelers had been completely healthy in that game, because I remember they they had no backfield. Franco was out and Rocky Blyer was out. Isn't that correct? If they had been uh, been completely healthy, do you think Pittsburgh would have taken that game? Oh man, I kind of had a feeling this question would come. Uh, I don't know. You, I would, and I hate saying this because I've been I've been a Steeler fan all my life. I would say probably not. Ooh. Not because that they didn't have the, the talent to do it. Uh, Oakland was on fire that year. They'd only lost one game. And Pittsburgh had already lost once at Oakland. They blew a 14-point lead in the last five minutes out in Oakland uh, to open the season. So Oakland already showed that they can win with Pittsburgh almost healthy. They didn't have Dwight White in that game, but they they still were pretty healthy otherwise. So I'm, I would still say Oakland would would have won. They didn't have – the Steelers didn't have their kicker either. They didn't have Roy Jarrell. He got hurt – or he'd been hurt the last several weeks of the season, and he ended up not kicking a couple of extra points in the in the playoff game the week before. Yeah. So they weren't really expected to be able to kick field goals. He had to, had to rely on their backup center, Ray Mansfield, to be their kicker. So that's another, uh, I guess, handicap going against him in that game. But I think fully healthy, I still think Oakland will won. But it would have been a lot closer, that's for sure. What made Chuck Knoll the great coach that he was? Um, I already mentioned it before. He was a great fundamentalist. He didn't do hardly anything flashy. They emphasized blocking, they emphasized tackling, they emphasized protecting the ball. I heard an interview once with him, and he rarely gave interviews. One of the things I'll always remember, I kind of applied it to my own coaching career when I was still coaching football, is that he's, uh, he was asked about the Steelers' success and winning four Super Bowls. He said, well, we don't get bored doing the fundamentals. Mm. And that is so, so underemphasized in today's game. And I look at look at the current Steelers and how often they they miss tackles on defense, and it's not just a Steeler thing. Currently, it's a it's a league wide thing. The tackling is atrocious, and and I guess you could you could attribute that to the lack of of hitting, you know, in practice that they only have so much time to do it. But they even so, they're still not very fundamentally sound. But if you watch films of the old days back in our day when we were kids <laughs> you, know, yeah. you really saw missed tackles yep. anywhere yeah tell, tell me something um were you able to interview any members of the team or the coaching staff or even the rooney family for this book no that's what the rooney really about this this is done completely off of uh, youtube videos watching posted game films and TV broadcasts and through newspaper research. And I always wished I could have, you know, and, I, and, I, and I've reached out to several of them. Uh, the, only, the only closest I got was I, 
I had a couple of email correspondences with uh, the old linebacker Andy Russell, mm-hmm. and he and I sent him a copy of a chapter, and and he thought it was a great idea. But then I never heard back from him again. Yeah. I was hoping to interview him, and I was close to getting Steve Furness's widow, uh, and she she was close to being able to give me an interview, but. I didn't really get much of a response. They don't know who I am. They probably figure I'm some yutz who doesn't, uh, who's just looking for an autograph or a way to sniff jocks, I guess, but they didn't really know who I was, so I didn't get any uh, correspondence. But maybe if the, if the book comes out and enough of them get to, get to reading it, maybe they'll give me interviews for a, a second edition. <laughs> you have- I've never been any of these guys. So I've never met a Steeler in my life, other than uh, the only one was I ever met was Merrill Hodge. Oh wow! That's the only one in all of for, throughout time, and it's been a, it's been a dream to be able to talk to some of those guys. Maybe someday. Well, Tony, you're not alone because I've been I'm working on a pro football book of my own, and I kind of reached out to some of the same guys you reached out to. Like, I mean, I contacted like Andy Russell and. He kind of expressed interest, but then there was no follow through. And then actually exchanged things with Mike Wagner. But you know what he told me? He basically said, read the McCambridge book and the Pomerantz books. He said, that says it all. You know, he said, it's already been said, you know, just read those instead. So I wonder if you got the same thing, you know, in your travels. No, other than other than Andy Russell, I didn't get any kind of response. Yeah. Uh, I re- I reached out to Roy Jarella. I asked. There was one one unanswered story that I found come across this book. He got in a fight Ooh. before Super Bowl ten. He, he was doing warm ups, you know, kicking on the Orange Bowl carpet, and they didn't have the nets up. So he'd gone through the practice balls after kicking, and he tried to go in the stands, and one of the fans tried to steal the ball. And, they, and the Steelers didn't have any left to kick, so he tried to get the ball from this guy, and he ended up getting a fight, and he got a lawsuit against him uh, based on that fight in the Orange Bowl, but and I never did find out from a newspaper accounts uh, what the end, of, end result of that lawsuit was. So he never responded to me either, so... Yeah. So I, I even said, you know, when I was all said and done, I sent a copy of the book to Terry Bradshaw. I saw his uh, I saw his ranch home address, so I sent it there back in October, and I haven't heard word from him how we liked it, if we or if he ever read it. Uh, Tony, we know the Steelers had so many immortals: Terry Bradshaw, Franco Harris, Mean Joe Green, Jack Lambert. But in your opinion, who was the unsung hero of the Steelers dynasty? Wow. You know, I I don't know if you can call him unsung, but I think the glue that really held the two the Steelers together were two guys, and they were Joe Green and Jack Lambert. Mm. And you can't like I said, you can't really call him unsung, but Lambert was the emotional leader and and Green was the leader leader in the whole locker room uh whenever whenever the Steelers made it plays in those days on defense one of those two guys is going to make it i i guess if you're going to look unsung and 
one who doesn't really get the due that he gets. Well, at least in the early part of the dynasty was Ernie Holmes. Mm. He, if he made one Pro Bowl, that might have been it. He was never named All Pro, but you watch him on film, you watch the game broadcast. He was just as good as Joe Green was in his heyday. He was almost impossible to block, and, be, and George Perlis knew that as a defensive line coach. So when it got late to the, in, in the 74 season, that stunt 4-3 with, with Holmes and Green pinching in on the center, doing their stunts and twists so they could protect Lambert. Without those two guys, that stunt 4-3 never takes place. Okay. Where would you put Jack Lambert in the pantheon of NFL linebackers? I mean, how does he compare with, like, Dick Budkus or Lawrence Taylor? Uh I can't compare Lawrence Taylor because I think there's just way too many different positions. He's an outside linebacker. Lambert was inside. Mm. One would think Lambert was probably better than Butkus in terms of being an all-around linebacker. Butkus, you just saw him as a run-stuffing demon. He'd go side to side and chase guys down. But you think of Butkus in terms of being able to stop the run and Singletary, same thing. Lambert could co- could cover the pass just as well as he could as, as well as he could stop the run. You know, he he saved Super Bowl fourteen with his fourth quarter interception. Vince Ferragamo was tearing up the Steelers, but when he Lambert made that interception to save the game, uh, that turned the whole game around for him, protected the lead, and. Lambert already was having a great uh, 76 season, even in their 1-4 and four start. In that 28.9 game stretch, he was an absolute demon. He was making tackles everywhere you looked. He'd strip uh, ball carriers. He'd recover fumbles. He'd make interceptions. He had like – he was. He's, I think at, at the time he uh, – He's either all, the all-time leader in fumble recoveries or the second wow. in fumble recovery. Even to this day, he's second on the all-time list in single-season recoveries. Wow. So he made every kind of play you could imagine. And probably the best game he had was the semifinal game against Baltimore. He was an absolute stud that day. Wow. Tony, how long did it take you to write this book? And does the book deal with X's and O's as well as the key highlights of that season? In terms of the writing, it probably took a year. Mm. I think about six months worth of research and watching broadcasts on YouTube and such. Then another six months to actually write it and go to the editing and and whatnot. Uh, I tried to throw in as much X's and O's as I could without getting, you know, too boring in terms of the average reader but i tried to explain you know the basics of uh what a trap was and offensive formations and and some of the new things that the steelers have tried offensively later in the year like steelers were always either split backs with a tight end and two receivers or three tight ends and two running backs and how they ever diversified from that but late in the season they ended up going into three wide receivers even before Franklin and and uh, 
Rocky were hurt. Uh, so I tried to explain a little bit of that without trying to get terribly boring with it. I found the, the longest part of this book for me is trying to either get the thing formatted or even published in the first place. With being a first-time writer, it was hard to really try to find anybody that wanted to take a chance on me. I figured I'd have to go the self-publishing route, but you know, I went to some of the big names and they said they wouldn't even pay attention to me without a literary agent, I guess. Yeah. And I can't, I could barely afford to get it self-published, much less hiring a self, uh, or a literary agent. So I was lucky after about four or five months, I got Outskirts Press to take a chance on me. And, and uh, I'm, I'm glad they did. So this is conventionally published. Is that correct, Tony? Yeah. This book is conventionally published, right? It wasn't a self-published book. Well, I get, they're a self-publishing company, but they uh, basically took through all the details, you know, with the with the formatting and the book covers and whatnot. But it is, I guess for all intents and purposes, it's self-published because they had to get paid for it to be published. But they took care of all the other details that I wouldn't have any idea how to handle. Well, you know, because Tony, I've self-published two books myself, so you know, I understand completely what you're talking about. I mean, with the big boys, you've got to have an agent. I mean, my first book was conventionally published, and I had an agent to get that through and all that. Especially in these days with the big ones, you got to. If you don't have an agent, they won't even look at you. You know. <laughs> yeah. Where can readers find this book, Tony? I have a I have a website. Well, I shouldn't say website. It's more uh, it's a Facebook page. You can get it directly from me uh, on my Facebook. It's a it's called Give Me a Six Pack: The Story of the Seventy Six Steelers. It's a it's a page on Facebook just for, just to go through me to get the book. It's cheaper, but it'll take a while to get through the mail. Or they can just order direct from Amazon or or Barnes and Noble or any other online bookstore. I was hoping to sell it in, in regular bookstores, but I haven't seen it anywhere around yet. Yeah. The uh, thing is, when you self-publish, I don't think you really can do it in regular bookstores. I mean, with my books, you can't find it in stores. It has to be done online. So far, that's all I've got. Yeah. And, and that's okay. You know, I'm, I'm not really looking to get into, like, a career out of it. I was just hoping to break even. And I'm, I just checked check my numbers. I lo I'm looking at where I'm at right now. And my last report says I'm a, I've got like 84 books sold so far since August. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to get rich doing it. Oh, I know. It's just if you, if you do it for love like I do. Tony, where were you born and raised? So, I was born in St. Joseph, Michigan. And I'm, I'm still here teaching in, in the high school I grew up in. Uh, the love of Pittsburgh came from my dad. He grew up in a suburb called Leesburg, about 45 minutes outside of Pittsburgh. And he got me to be a Steeler fan and a Pirate fan and a Penguin fan and a Panther fan from the very start. So <laughs> that's where I got my love of, of everything Pittsburgh. And in my, in my introduction, I, I write a lot about, uh, about my dad and how we, uh, spent a lot of time watching old Steeler games, you know. Where is Saint, Where is Saint Joseph? I mean, uh, which which one of the lakes is it close to, or which major city is it close to? 
We are right on Lake Michigan. We're in southwest Michigan. Uh, I guess if you want to talk major cities, if you if you call them that, we're about 45 minutes south of Kalamazoo and about 45 minutes north of South Bend. Mm. Tony, whenever I interview an author, I always like to ask this question because I'm always curious about it. When you were growing up, who were your favorite authors when you were growing up and which ones inspired you to become an author or may have influenced your own personal writing style? <laughs> to be to be honest, I did, as growing up, I didn't really read a whole heck of a lot. I, I used to read early, but you know, I, I, I read a lot of Charlie Brown books. I used to love Charles Schultz and everything he'd write. Uh, but I didn't really read up and from middle school to high school. If I did, I'd read the newspapers or I'd read Sports Illustrated. I, I read Sports Illustrated until you couldn't blink. <laughs> um, when I started getting back into reading, I really loved reading John Feinstein. Mm. Or Feinstein, I can never pronounce his name right, but I've, I've loved his books. He would, I still do. I just got through reading his, his latest book, and it's just amazing. He talked about... Uh, the Middle Eastern schools uh, and their and their path to the NCAA tournament back in 2019. Uh, just a real in-depth profile of some of the smaller schools you never never hear from, like Howard and and, uh, and American places like that. And yeah. it, it's really interesting. He's a he, the way I the way I really try to emulate from him is. He, he talks about a lot of different uh, places. He talks about a lot of different people. He's inclusive, if mm. I'm saying the word right. And when I wrote this book, I had that kind of in mind because I wrote at least something about every person who tried out for the Steelers in 76. Mm. My preseason chapter was about as long as you could imagine. <laughs> And I, I talked a little bit about how each of the players that were drafted or even the un, un, uh, undrafted free agents gave a little bit of their story. So maybe a guy like uh, uh, Kelvin Kirk, he was a 17th round draft pick. Uh, he was the first Mr. Irrelevant. Remember those guys? Mr. Re he was the very first one. Wow. And just guys like that. They may never hear their name again. They only had like a brief, a brief moment of glory in their time trying out for the Steelers or anybody else. And here their name is in a book. They can at least point to it and talk to their sons or grandsons. Hey, I was in a book. I actually, this actually happened to me. Yeah. Tony, do you think, see yourself writing another book? And if so, what would it be about? And when can we expect its release? Well, just before you called, I've been, I was working on my second book. I'm in the middle of it right now. Ooh. Um, it's called, So You Think There's a Chance. Oh, wow. It, it's, uh, and I'm not going to do a very good job selling the book because I always have a tough time explaining the premise. But it, I guess in short, I'm, tr I'm writing about every season uh, from the merger on in terms of like all of the playoff possibilities and scenarios for each of the teams and what the tiebreakers would be and and what uh, 
what scenarios may have played out for every team. Like uh, for the for the Lions to make the playoffs, they have to beat the Bears, and they have to hope that the the Vikings beat the Packers and the Cowboys beat the Saints. Yada yada yada. And I've always I've always found the last week of the NFL season to be the most exciting because so many teams don't control their own scenarios, don't control their own destiny. So they not only have to win, they have to hope for their teams to uh, help them get in. And I, I, I've always I've always found that fascinating. So I'm I'm through 1989 at this point. Wow. I'm I'm another five or six months before that's probably ready to be brought about and then um, a friend of mine wants me to write about his neighborhood i'm not sure it's going to be much of a sale we'll see what happens with that okay and i think down the line I'm, i want to write about that 1989 Steeler team okay and it, it's the uh it's the same kind of premise as as the 76 book uh, so i want to delve into that maybe i'll get lucky and actually talk to some of those guys okay we're just hoping to rally from the newspapers that 89 team lost their first two games uh, by a total score of 92 to 10 but they still ended up making the playoffs and just that whole season always fascinated me so i've got a couple of ideas down the line i'm i'm close to retiring from teaching i'm about a year and a half out now and i'll probably have more time to write and hopefully travel and some more things I can write about. Well, Tony, I want to thank you so much for appearing on my show, and I wish you the best of luck in all your endeavors. So thank you very much, and good night. Thank you very much. I appreciate being on your show. Honored to have you. Take care. Thank you, bud. Okay, bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing historian Shannon Bontrager. Thank you, and good night.